0: We are at the beginning of our series on Romans. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 16. We're going to start with the back and preach backwards to the front. Actually, we're going to preach from the back until about the middle and then start at the beginning and meet back at the middle, but we'll explain it as we go. But we're starting at the back because the the tail chapters of Romans give us the, the cultural and social context for the rest of the book. And we really wanted to make sure that the, the, um, the shepherding concerns that Paul had for the church in Rome, for the saints in Rome, were at the front of our minds at the, at the beginning of the series, uh, because the book of Romans really starts digging into what, have, what has been traditionally understood as a lot of in-depth theological doctrinal material, which is, is great stuff. But it's all there for, for a, a particular reason, a particular reason, and we saw that the reason um, from chapter 16, we begin to see clues into that reason. The reason is that there was a lot of um, socio-economic and, and ethnic diversity in the church in Rome amongst the saints. There was at least, uh, scholars think that there were six or seven what we would call house churches in the city of Rome. And um, there was division, division amongst those house churches based upon um, uh, ethnic Diversity based upon socioeconomic diversity. A lot of the members of the church in Rome were, were slaves. A lot of them were of the elite classes as well. So you had a lot of diversity in the church in Rome, and there were people that were influencing all of those saints in the midst of the diversity to kind of to take sides according to their, to their group, and, and Paul challenges them in chapter 16 to avoid the division, avoid those who cause division and put obstacles in the way. Um, because if, if we start aligning ourselves with all of the causes that we can align ourselves with based upon our, our race or our socioeconomic classes or where we live, our color, if we start picking out mission. Do justice according to all these various groupings, we will not be united as a people. And it, that is a very uh, tempting and possible thing for us to do uh, at this time with all of the various tensions that exist in our culture around race, around uh, economic classes, around social classes, around justice. And so, as, as Christians, we need to be clear on what. God is calling us to uh, on mission. And we're going to see that, that, that God is not calling us to be set apart and distinct from the problems of this world. Okay? Um, what he's asking us to do, and, and we'll increasingly see this as Romans goes along, what, what Jesus Christ is wanting to do with us is create um, a, 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 an image of the kingdom of God here on this earth. Uh, we're not going to change the culture, but we do need to affect it. And the effects of what of our efforts should be seen in the church community. Um, and, and so there's this outward expression of good deeds uh, for the purpose of building a church community that reflects that reflects the image of God. And we're going to see what that increasingly looks like as Romans goes along. And so this part of the book of of Romans, Paul is explaining to the Roman church uh, why he's writing and what he wants them to do. And there are um, specific things that he mentions. Now, I'm, I mentioned last week that at the tail end of chapter 16, at the beginning of chapter 1, we see Paul make this statement that his mission was to bring the world to the obedience of faith. Okay, those are the two bookends to the book of Romans. He is called to bring obedience of faith to the nations of the world. Now, obedience of faith um, means that he sees God as creator of all things in heaven and on earth through his son, Jesus Christ. And that God is Lord. And that God is calling all humanity to know him and to serve him. But to serve God means you must first come to a place of faith in God. Serving and obedience does not come out of a place of of guilt or of, of burdensome obligation. It has to come from love. It has to come from an obligation that is driven by love and an awareness of what Christ has done for us and an awareness of what God has done for us and from the basis of that understanding of that love and of that grace we are then compelled by love into service. And so Paul spends a lot of time explaining the gospel. Um, So he can get to the point of saying, I need your help in this mission to bring about the obedience of faith in the nations of the world. And so what Paul did, what Paul did is he went from key cities, so he started in the city of Antioch, Acts chapter 13, and they, the, city, the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out on various trips to key cities throughout the Roman Empire to preach the gospel and to start churches. And Paul does that work, and as we saw here in chapter 15, what, what Mallory read, he said, I've, I've completed my task, and there is no more room for my work. Now, it's not like he visited all of the, the, the millions of people in the Roman Empire. He went to a few strategic cities, preached the gospel, and started churches. And he said, from, from Jerusalem to Lyricum, which is basically um, just east of the what we know as Italy, um, he, he had done that work. He had started churches in key cities and now was going to head to Spain, And so he said, I've completed my work. I want to come to you so that you can help me go to Spain. But they weren't going to be able to help him if they were divided. So they, as a church, needed to be obedient according to the faith, okay, in order for them to represent Christ and the kingdom of God there in Rome, and they needed to be unified so that they could then support Paul as he went to continue to start churches amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations of the world. And so they needed to be supportive of his, of his very mission. So how does, how does Paul's work, how does the mission of God get accomplished just by preaching the gospel and started starting churches in key cities? Tim Keller says in his book on City Church, which is one of the books that we use in our leadership training course, um, a big chunk of it is is an explanation of why we need to concentrate on, on developing churches in major cities. He says this, Paul and other Christian missionaries went to great cities because when Christianity was planted there, it spread regionally. Cities were where the centers of transportation routes It also spread globally. Cities were multi-ethnic international centers and converts took the gospel back to their homeland. And finally, it more readily affected the culture. The centers of learning law and government were in the cities. And the key assumption of what a church does when planted is this, a church that thrives in the city will create a community whose members will spread naturally throughout the adjoining region and other great cities. So Paul knew that when he would plant when he would plant a church, when he preached the gospel and plant a church in a strategic city, that over the generations the gospel would expand and churches would be started. And I want to show you this chart. And I can post this on the realm. This is, a, this is the, the Roman Empire, a Mediterranean area. And I know we don't use visuals very often, but I've always found this visual to be very helpful in seeing the effectiveness of Paul's strategy. Every red dot is a church in the Roman Empire in the first century. By the second century, you see the dots expanding um, and increasing. And by the third century, you see red dots all over the place. So... Th- Paul's mission wasn't expecting to see dramatic change in just a few years. Jesus doesn't have in mind uh, this, this rapid expansion of the gospel that goes from, from Jerusalem to London uh, in, a, in a decade or two. Okay? It takes 300 years. But once it's there, because of, of, of social networks, because of the gospel, it, it naturally spreads through the relationships that we have. And so as this occurred, um, you see Paul's expectations for these churches, and we've, we've studied the book of Titus, and we preached through it a couple years ago. We see that in order for that church to be effective in mission, for the sake of the faith of the elect, Paul starts out in Titus, there is a mission. We're here for bringing the nations to obedience through faith we see that the church gets established, leaders are appointed, and there is a call to follow and obey Jesus Christ by engaging in good works in our families and our community, which means putting aside sin and putting on righteousness and living according to the order that God has created within families and in the community. And in that, there builds a strength that is then able to engage the world in meeting pressing needs. So it's a long-term effort It's a long-term effort to transform lives to places of strength, to build friendships and social networks in the church and in the community, and then to be a presence of Jesus Christ in the world. So that's the expectation. And that's what Paul was doing. Planning churches, not in every town and village in the Roman Empire, but in the strategic cities that would then spread to other strategic cities and towns. And over the generations, you would see a large effect Uh, And really, it took over the entire Roman Empire. Christianity did. So, what does this mean for us? Because if we're going to think of ourselves as a church, we need to see ourselves as a part of what Paul described as his mission in bringing the gospel to the nations and bringing people to the obedience of faith. We have to see ourselves in this context because we are a local church. We are the fruit of generations and generations and generations of gospel expansion and church planting. We were planted 12 years ago out of a church in, in Ames, Iowa, and out of a church in Woodbury. Started the, helped start the west side site, the church in Woodbury, and the Ames church started the, the uptown site. And now we're working together. We've got good foundations, but we are still, and we are called to be on mission. Now... As we considered the admonition of a church that is meeting pressing needs, we have to ask ourselves and pray, what pressing needs do we need to address? Okay? And that's the, that's the prayer that we prayed. And many of you have to- heard the story that we've told you know, of how Twin Cities Ministries was started. Because um, it, was, it was a prayer to God. God, show us what we can do uh, to meet the pressing needs of this world, and we had concerns of race, we had concerns of of crime, we had concerns of substance abuse. Those things were all kind of in this in this in this prayer and in our and in our uh, mind about things that we were concerned about because of the experiences we had. And then God brought Seth and Gina to our midst, and that's what started Twin Cities Ministries. Um, and but I want to kind of I want to go into what I think and many think, is one of the more pressing needs, if not the most pressing need, uh, in the Twin Cities, not because I think that we need to take this on exactly or uniquely, but is a, a picture of um, this, the substantial effect of, of the needs that are here um, in particular, and we're gonna look at this, this issue of race. And I wanna, look at, I, I wanna look at some of the effects, and again, Um, I'm not bringing this particular issue up to say, hey, this is now our mission. What I'm doing is bringing up what needs to be thought of, an aspect of our mission, and how the preaching and living of the gospel and the starting of churches can begin to address these types of social needs. So in the issue of race, so when I... When I first got here, I met with, at that point, it was uh, Councilwoman Hodges, she eventually became mayor. And we had a brief meeting in her, in her office uh, in the city hall uh, in Minneapolis. And I asked her, you know, what, what do you perceive to be the, the, the biggest challenges and needs in Minneapolis? And she just immediately, without a, without a break at all, just said, Minneapolis is one of the most racially segregated cities in all of the nation. And so we talked about that a little bit more. And obviously, if you are reading the news on social media or radio or television or newspaper or whatever, however it is you get your news and stay up to date with things, it's obviously clear that race um, continues to be a big challenge in the Twin Cities. And I want to look at just a few of the ways that we see this emerge. Um, The first, so this is out of a... um, This is out of of a September 8th news article in the Star Tribune. Uh, Minnesota has deep racial disparities. You probably can't see it all from the back, but there are three things that they are measuring here. Uh, Educational attainment, work, which is share of people ages 16 through 64 in the labor force, and then home ownership. Um, And so in in terms of educational attainment, the share of people ages 25 or over who have a bachelor's degree. Um, And this is just... Blacks and whites. So blacks 20% versus 36%. And the thing to look at is the rank. We're 39th in the nation. From the standpoint of work those who are between the ages of 16 to 64 who are in the labor force uh, 74% blacks versus 83 we are 45th in the nation. Um, Homeownership goes from 24% with blacks to 76% with whites. We are 48th in the nation. Now the, uh, the here's, here's another one. This is racial disparities in terms of um, corrections and incarceration. So this is, these are the national statistics right here. So this is looking at whites, Hispanics, and blacks um, from the standpoint of those who are incarcerated. So whites are 64% the percent of the population, but are only 30% of those incarcerated. Hispanics are 16 percent of the population, but are 23 percent of those incarcerated. Blacks are 12 percent of the population and 33 percent of those who are incarcerated. Now the next slide is, is Minnesota. So in Minnesota, we are 83 percent white, population-wise, 47 percent are of those who are incarcerated, 47 percent are whites. Um, blacks are 5 percent. and of the population, but 31%, almost a third of the prison population. Hispanics are 5%, but represent 12% of the prison population. And Native Americans are 1% of the population, but are 8% of the prison population. So those are just, I'm just, I'm just showing gaps. I'm just showing gaps here. The next one is education. So this is from the Cerise uh, Walburn Foundation for Children. Um, this foundation was started, uh, so the two, the two founders of this foundation um, were the legal team that brought the tobacco company um, case here in the state of Minnesota, and they won that case, and they got $30 million in fees. So they started a foundation to help specifically um, children of racial minorities in, the, in Minnesota. And this is really tracking the gaps. So there's Minnesota test scores, there's Minneapolis te- test scores, and there's St. Paul test scores. And essentially what they show um, are huge gaps in, in reading and in um, mathematics for whites compared to, to blacks and to uh, Latinos. So just for example, I'm just gonna go to Minneapolis test scores. So 21% of African American students are proficient in reading leading to a 59% point gap between blacks and whites in the city of Minneapolis. Um, For math, 17.4% of African-American students in Minneapolis are proficient. There's a 60-point gap compared with white students. And for Hispanics and Latinos, 27% are proficient in reading, leading to a 26% gap uh, between whites and and Hispanics and Latinos. So again, the, the point of those slides isn't to say that, hey, our big mission now is to address um, the, the gaps between whites and racial minorities in all of these things. Okay? Um, because the challenges that minorities face are not just an issue of, of race or ethnicity, it's also an issue of income and wealth. And so uh, in 2012, Charles Murray published a book called Coming Apart, The State of White America, and the, the, um, the title's a little bit misleading, and as you're reading through the book, because he's going through all these statistics showing how there's this increased uh, divergence between um, wealthy whites and the rest of the country, but when you get to the end of the book, what he says, now listen, we've looked at whites, but here's the real kicker. The issue isn't primarily one of race. And he's looking at uh, a few things, but one of the things that he brings up um, is what he calls perceived happiness. And there's all kinds of social statistics that go along with this and scientific analysis, he says, if you look at what is what, is, what the experience of perceived happiness is, the experience in, in whites and blacks and Hispanics and Latinos is across the board pretty much the same. And what it shows is that, um, and he, he, there's a series of questions that I'm not gonna get into the detail of, but he's looking at, um, there are four, four domains that make up a person's perception of happiness, family, faith, a community, and vocation. And so he gets to the end of the book and he shows, we, we've looked at the disparity, and there are huge disparities between affluent and super affluent in terms of how disconnected they are getting from the rest of America. And that's showing up in not only income gaps, but just, I think you see it in the, in the, the, the politics now. There just is an increased disconnect between... Um, the elites and those of us in the rest of the world, um, and so the, there's the and there's huge culture wars around all of these things. But and what the, the what the argument is is that um, it's not just an issue of race. It's also it's it's significantly um, an issue of 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 wealth. But what he notices is is regardless of economic class, and regardless of race. Um, perceived happiness is going down. Perceived happiness among rich blacks and rich Latinos and rich whites is pretty much the same, but it's going down. Perceived happiness amongst poor whites and poor Hispanics and poor blacks, poor minorities, pretty much the same, also going down. And his argument is that we are unraveling as a country and it's much bigger and broader than just race. It's much bigger and broader than just economics. It is a deterioration of what has made uh, America strong and unique in the world. And that's the holding up of these, these founding virtues which he says center around um, family, work, faith, and community. And so as we think about these challenges, um, because these are, these are real needs these are real needs. These are pressing needs in our city. We have to consider them because the scriptures teach us to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is telling us to meet pressing needs. And we can't ignore the pressing needs that are in our world. And if these are what the culture perceives as the most pressing needs, we have to be thinking about them. We're not going to make them exclusively our mission. And let me, and, and kind of let me I'm going to explain how we see these things in the context of our mission. It is going to require intention, as we see in proverbs. Um, you know, there's all these proverbs. When we look at proverbs around um, of poverty and, and economics and generosity, uh, what you see is that um, those that are the marginalized, those are who are the economically marginalized are those that are forgotten and unseen by even their family members. The the friends of those who are poor and marginalized and the family of those who are poor and marginalized go unnoticed and abandoned, and they don't have friends, and they don't have family. And so the the takeaway from that is that um, our ministry to those who are poor and marginalized <laughs> isn't just going to happen. If if the observations in proverbs, because proverbs are observation of what reality is in the world, if our observation of Pro, if the observations of proverbs are correct, um, we could all just live unintentionally leaving the poor and marginalized out of our purview. That's naturally what happens. And so there has to be some intentional effort, um, just as Jesus made intentional effort, to reach those who are the poor and marginalized, which is where a lot of these needs are at. And so we have to ask ourselves two questions. Because if Paul's mission is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. All right, That means that we are a part of that objective. Paul is calling us to the obedience of faith. right? But as a church, we are also on this mission to bring the nations of the world to the obedience of faith, to bring places that don't have the gospel, the gospel, to bring places that don't have the church, the church. And so those are the two questions that we're going to ask throughout the book of Romans. What does it look like for us to be obedient? And what does it look like for us to participate in this this mission of bringing the nations to obedience? And so we're going to answer these questions as we proceed. And at this point, through half of chapter 15 and chapter 16, there are two big things that we have burdening us to obey. First of all, Pursue affectionate unity while avoiding division. We are instructed to uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't do that in America. You go to Portugal, you get kissed. You go to France, you get kissed. You go to French Quebec, you get kissed. We don't do it here. And I'm not not going to advocate (laughs) that we start (laughs) kissing each other, okay? Um, but let me tell you, it is a custom that breaks down unfamiliarity that kind of holds us off from one another. Does that make any sense? Um, you you feel closer to somebody <laughs> if they've kissed you on the cheek and you've kissed them on the cheek, male or female, because it goes both ways. So there there is a there's maybe a, a a little bit of an American um inhibition or prohibition, if that's the right word, um to closeness that that we may be, need to be aware of. Okay, again, I'm not advocating that we start kissing one another, but what I am saying is that we are called to an affectionate unity across races. Across socioeconomic classes that's one of the burdens that we have to be obedient and obedient people we have to be vigilant not to take on these missions and narratives and identities of the world and bring them into the church we have got to found our identity and narrative mission on what Jesus has given us which is again what the whole book of Romans is about So we're going to kind of be holding off for some of these answers as we go But we find our identity, our narrative, our mission. And Paul gives us all three in the book of Romans. An identity, a narrative that's got history behind it, that encapsulates all of the nations of the world and all of history past and the future. And a mission. And we've got to take that then and take that to the world. The second thing is the obligation that we are called to participate in the effort of Paul's mission which is taking the gospel to places that don't have it and starting churches in places that don't have it, don't have them, and strengthening churches because that's what he's doing here in Rome. He's strengthening the church. He's strengthening the church. He's not starting a new church. He didn't start it, but he is strengthening it. And so what does that look like for us? You know, what does that look like for us? Well, what does it mean to participate in this, in this mission to bring the world to the obedience of faith. I think we have to start with some assumptions. Um, the, the gospel is in the Twin Cities. It's, it's here. It's been here for over 100 years. It's been here since the Twin Cities were founded. There is, so there's not a need for like the gospel going to a place where it's never been. There is a huge need for churches to be Strengthened. We have to recognize and assume that, that the segregation that exists in the Twin Cities also exists in the churches. And that new people are always coming into the Twin Cities. You know, so since we have moved here, because I've been looking at this these demographic stats since 2007, 2006 when we moved here. In 2006, the Twin Cities were... Uh, Roughly 3.2 million people. We are now 3.6 million people. We have grown by 400,000 people the Twin Cities in the last 10 to 12 years 400,000 people that is a lot of people you wonder why all these apartments are shooting up all over town at least in my neighborhood They never stop building them and they don't provide parking for them either, which is another problem, but They are being filled you may ask where are these people coming from they're coming from everywhere they are coming from other nations. They are coming from small towns in the Midwest. Minneapolis is, is one of the key places to go to. We are growing. We are growing as a twin city. So we need to be aware of that. And there are three objectives that I think that we've got to have. And we'll continue to look at these as we go through. Three objectives. I'm, I know I'm packing a lot of this stuff in here, but we're almost done. One, we have to hold forth the gospel with boldness. And that phrase comes out of Philippians. We have to hold forth the gospel with boldness as a people. All right, Paul says, I am confident that you are capable of instructing one another. So we have the capacity to fulfill this obligation, to speak the gospel to ourselves and to hold forth the gospel in the world. And Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist out of, out, of, out of Baylor. He's written a couple books. One of them is called uh, The Rise of Christianity. The other one's called uh, Cities of God. And he shows Paul's missionary strategy and how it was so effective, uh, looking at cities and, and all those kind of things. And one of the things that he sees in not just uh, Paul's strategy, but in, in terms of how movement's spread uh, in our current day, is he says conversions don't happen by these... Random efforts to share the gospel with people. You know, the, the, and he looked at some of the Mormon statistics. So, you know, the, the Mormons come by your house and they, they, they door knock and they talk to you. One out of every thousand visits is effective. One out of every thousand. But if, a, if somebody invites a friend into the home and then invites the Mormon missionaries in, 50% effectiveness. What he's seeing And what the scriptures anticipate is that conversions happen when people have more, they're unbalanced in their connections. And they're unbalanced in favor of people that know Jesus Christ versus people in their lives that have an effect on them that don't know Jesus Christ. And so it's people that are needing and looking for friends that are... Most effectively, so the people in need, the people on the margins, the people that are poor, just as Proverbs teaches us. People come to know Jesus Christ because of people that love them. And you know when they learn the doctrines of the faith and the intricacies of the scriptures? After they've converted. <laughs> all of the scriptures in the New Testament essentially are the people that have already converted. They don't learn all of the doctrines before and then decide... I, I'm going to believe in Jesus because I have mastered the book of Romans. They come to know Jesus because they're being loved by people that love Jesus, and they talk to them about Jesus being a king and lord, who's going to come back and recreate the world and save them from their own sin and, and self-destruction. That's why people get converted. And so again, it, 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 it burdens us with this obligation of hospitality. So we need to pray and plan to do a few things. In our own families and individual lives, befriend those in our lives, our neighbors, our coworkers, our colleagues, classmates, whomever, with the gospel and bring them into our families and bring them into our house church sets of relationships. This is gonna take time. This is gonna take investment. This is going to take friendship. We have each other. We have each other. We don't need any more substantive friends that hold us up. We've got the church, we've got each other. And the Hegstrom's testimony this morning is just an example of that. There are people that need what we have, and we need to be what is called an open network open to more people coming in because of our, of our love. So that's one the, that we need to pray and plan to help strengthen existing churches. There are, there are 3,500 churches in the Twin Cities. Not all of them have the gospel. I would say probably most of them do not have the gospel, clear. So where do we have an opportunity to help churches that are maybe in areas that are on those margins? You know, there are churches in the places in the Twin Cities where those who um, are or live. You know, we're, not, we're, not gonna, we're not just going to go in and start churches in place. There are churches there. How can we help churches that are there? I think we need to pray and plan. And I think we need to pray vigilantly for God to, and he's answered these kinds of prayers. Lord Jesus, who would you have us help in the Twin Cities to meet the pressing needs of the Twin Cities? And I also think we need to pray and plan to start more house churches in these places. All right? If you are a household or an individual, and you're looking to move, and you don't have a lot of social ties in the neighborhood where you're at for a whole variety of reasons, consider moving into a place where there is very weak gospel representation, or very weak representation in our church of of minorities. We do not, we are a very white church. We don't reflect the kingdom of God. You know, and I'm—I don't want to be apologetic about how we've gotten to the place where we're at. Uh, we have foundations now. We have foundations now. Those foundations should launch us into future work where we can be more strategic and intentional about the needs that are present in the Twin Cities. So. Hold forth the gospel boldly in our families and as individuals. Um, where, so that's one. Where can we strengthen existing churches? How can we help like we're doing in Portugal and in Mozambique? Third, um, where can we start new house churches? Where can we start new house churches? Are you being called to host and lead a house church maybe? I want us to all be praying along these lines. And don't, don't think of it in terms of, you know, I want to do something in the next six months or next year, and we're going to see amazing results within that time frame. Th- let's think decades. Let's think, what's, what's this going to be in 10 years? What's this going to be in 20 years? What's this going to be like when the existing team of elders is dead and the next generation is there? That's what we need to be thinking about because that's the kind of changes that we see. And this is going to take, this is going to take a, a radical Focus on our part that requires a true energizing by the gospel. Are we on this mission that Jesus has called us to or not? And, and how do we organize our lives around that? And so we're going to be challenged. If we're, going to, if we're going to obey Jesus and follow Paul as he has instructed this church in Rome, if we're going to take those instructions on ourselves, we're going to have to dig deep we're going to have to dig deep and really challenge what we are giving our lives to. And that's why, <laughs> that's why the book of Romans is so deep and rich and lengthy, is that Paul's calling us to something that's going to have to radically transform us to do.